0: Chapter 2 of The Wailing Asteroid by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wailing Asteroid, Chapter 2. Burke was no less disturbed, but his disturbance was of a different kind. After he left Sandy at the house where she and her sister boarded, he headed back to the plant. He wanted to think things out the messages from space, of course, must presage events of overwhelming importance. The coming of intelligent aliens to earth might be comparable to the coming of white men to the American continents. They might bring superior techniques, irresistible weapons, and an assumption of superiority that would bring inevitable conflict with the aborigines of earth. Judging by the actions of the white race on earth, if the newcomers were merely explorers, it could mean the coming doom of humanity's independence. If they were invaders... Something like this would be pointed out soon after the news itself. Some people would react with total despair, expecting the strangers to act like men. Some might hope that a superior race would have developed a kindliness and altruism that on earth are rather rare. But there was no one at all who would not be apprehensive. Some would panic. Burke's reaction was strictly personal. Nobody else in the world would have felt the same appalled, stunned emotion he felt when he heard the sounds from space, because to him they were familiar sounds. He paced up and down in the big, partitionless building in which the actual work of Burke Development, Inc. was done. He had done some reasonably good work in this place the prototype of the hydroponic wall for interiors ink still stood against one wall. It was crude, but he'd made it work, and then built a production model which now had been shipped off complete. A little to one side was a prototype of a special machine which stamped out small parts for American tool. That had been a tricky assignment. There were plastic and glass wool and such oddments with which he'd done a process design job for Holmes' yachts, and a box of small parts left over from the designing job that gave one aviation company the only practical, small-plane retractable landing gear. These things had a queer meaning for him now. He devised the wanted products, he developed certain needed processes, but now he began to be deeply suspicious of his own successes. Each was a new reason for uneasiness. He grimly questioned whether his highly peculiar obsession had not been planted in him against the time when fluting noises would come from that illimitable void beyond Earth's atmosphere. He examined, for the thousandth time, his special linkage with the space noises. In previous soul-searchings he'd pinpointed the time when the whole business began. He'd been eleven years old. He could even work out something close to an exact date. He was living with his aunt and uncle, his own parents being dead. His uncle had made a business trip to Europe alone, and had brought back souvenirs which were fascinating to eleven-year-old Joe Burke. There was a flint knife, and a carved ivory object which his uncle assured him was mammoth ivory. It had a deer's head incised into it. There were some fragments of pottery and a dull-surfaced black cube. They appealed to the small boy because, his uncle said, they belonged to men who lived when mammoths roamed the earth, and cavemen hunted the now extinct huge beasts. Crow magnons his uncle said, had owned the objects. he bought them from a French peasant who'd found a cave with pictures on its walls that dated back twenty thousand years. The French government had taken over the cave, but before reporting it, the peasant had thriftily hidden away some small treasures to sell for himself. Burke's uncle bought them and in time presented them to the local museum. All but the black cube, which Burke had dropped. It had shattered into a million tissue-thin shiny plates, which his aunt insisted on sweeping out. He tried to keep one of the plates, but his aunt had found it under his pillow and disposed of it. He remembered the matter solely because he'd examined his memory so often, trying to find something relevant to account for the beginning of his recurrent dream. Somewhere, shortly after his uncle's visit, he had had a dream. Like all dreams, it was not complete. It made no sense. But it wasn't a normal dream for an eleven-year-old boy. He was in a place where the sun had just set, but there were two moons in the sky. One was large and motionless, the other was small and moved swiftly across the heavens. From behind him came fluting signals, like the messages that would later come from space. In the dream he was full-grown, and he saw trees with extraordinary ribbony leaves like no trees on earth. They wavered and shivered in a gentle breeze, but he ignored them as he did the fluting sounds behind him. He was searching desperately for someone. A child knows terror for himself, but not for anybody else. But Burke, then aged eleven, dreamed that he was in an agony of fear for someone else. To breathe was torment. He held a weapon ready in his hand. He was prepared to do battle with any imaginable creature for the person he needed to find. And suddenly he saw a figure running behind the waving foliage. The relief was almost greater pain than the terror had been. It was a kind and amount of emotion that an eleven-year-old boy simply could not know, but Burke experienced it. He gave a great shout and bounded forward toward her, and the dream ended. He dreamed it three nights running, then it stopped, for a while. Then a week later he had the dream again, repeated in every detail. He had it a dozen times before he was twelve, and as many more before he was thirteen. It recurred at random intervals all through his teens, while he was in college and after. When he grew up he found out that recurrent dreams are by no means unusual, but this was very far from a usual dream. From time to time he observed new details in the dream. He knew that he was dreaming, His actions and his emotions did not vary, but he was able to survey them, like the way one can take note of items in a book one reads while quite absorbed in it. He came to notice the way the trees sent their roots out over the surface of the ground before dropping suckers down into it. He noticed a mass of masonry off to the left. He discovered that a hill in the distance was not a natural hill. He was able to remember markings on the large, stationary moon in the sky, and to realize that the smaller one was jagged and irregular in shape. The dream did not change, but his knowledge of the place of the dream increased. As he grew older he was startled to realize that, though the trees, for example, were not real, they were consistent with reality. The weapon he held in his hand was especially disturbing. Its grip and barrel were transparent plastic and in the barrel there was a sequence of peculiarly shaped forms, in and about which wire had been wound. As a grown man he'd made such shapes in metal once. He tried them out as magnets in a job for American tool. But they weren't magnets. They were something specific and alarming instead. He also came to know exactly what the mass of masonry was, and it was a sobering engineering feat. No boy of eleven could have imagined it. And always there were the flute-like musical sounds coming from behind him. When he was twenty-five he'd memorized them. He'd heard them, dreamed them, hundreds of times. He tried to duplicate them on a flute and devised a special mute to get exactly the tone quality he remembered so well. He made a recording to study, but the study was futile. In a way, it was unwholesome to be so much obsessed by a dream. In a way, the dream was magnificently irrelevant to messages transmitted through millions of miles of emptiness. But the flute-like sounds linked it, now, to reality. He paced up and down in the empty, resonant building and muttered, I ought to talk to the space exploration people. Then he laughed. That was ironical all the crackpots in the world would be besieging all the authorities who might be concerned with the sounds from space, impassionately informing them what Julius Caesar or Chief Sitting Bull or some other departed shade had told them about the matter via automatic writing or Ouija boards. Those who did not claim ghostly authority would explain that they had special talents, or a marvellous invention, or that they were members of the race which had sent the messages the satellite tracking stations received. No, it would serve no purpose to inform the Academy of Sciences that he'd been dreaming signals like the ones that now agitated humanity. It was too absurd. But it was unthinkable for a person of Burke's temperament to do nothing. So he set to work in exactly the fashion of one of the crackpots he disliked. Actually, The job should have been undertaken in ponderous secrecy by committees from various learned societies, official bureaus, and all the armed forces. There should have been squabbles about how the task was to be divided up, bitter arguments about how much money was to be spent by whom, violent disagreements about research and development contracts. It should have been treated as a program of research, in which everybody could claim credit for all achievements and nobody was to blame for blunders. Burke could not command resources for so ambitious an undertaking. And he knew that as a private project it was preposterous. But he began the sort of preliminary labor that an engineer does before he really sets to work. He jotted down some items that he didn't have to worry about. The wall-garden he'd made for interiors ink would fit neatly into whatever final result he got, if he got a final result. He had a manufacturing process available for glass wool and plastics. If he could get hold of an inertia-controlled computer, he'd be all set, but he doubted that he could. The crucial item was a memo he'd made from a memory of the DREAM weapon. It concerned certain oddly-shaped bits of metal, with fine wires wound eccentrically about them, which flew explosively to pieces when a current went through them. That was something to worry about right away. At three o'clock in the morning, then, Burke routed out the laboratory notes on the small-sized metal stamping machine he had designed for American tool. He tried to do the job with magnets, but they flew apart. He'd wound up with blank cartridges to provide the sudden, explosive stamping action required, but the notes on the quasi-magnets were complete. He went through them carefully. An electromagnet does not really attain its full power immediately after the current is turned on there is an inductive resistance, inherent in a wound magnet, which means that the magnetism builds up gradually. From his memory of the elements in a transparent plastic hand-weapon barrel, Burke had concluded that it was possible to make a magnet without inductive resistance. He tried it. When the current went on, it went to full strength immediately. In fact, it seemed to have a negative induction effect. But the trouble was that it wasn't a magnet. It was something else. It wound up as scrap. Now very reflectively he plugged in a metal lathe and carefully turned out a very tiny specimen of the peculiarly shaped magnetic core. He wound it by hand, very painstakingly. It was a tricky job. It was six o'clock Saturday morning when the specimen was finished. He connected the leads to a storage battery and threw the switch. The small object tore itself to bits, and the core landed fifteen feet from where it had been. Burke beamed. He wasn't tired, but he wanted to think things over, so he drove to a nearby diner and got coffee and a roll, and reflected with satisfaction upon his accomplishment. At the cost of several hours' work, he had made a thing like a magnet, which wasn't a magnet, and which destroyed itself when turned on. As he drank his coffee, a radio news period came on he listened the signals still arrived from space punctually 79 minutes apart at this moment 6:30 a.m. they were not heard on the atlantic coast but the pacific coast still picked them up and they were heard in hawaii and again on the south pacific island of kalua burke drove back to the plant he was methodical now He reactivated the prototype wall-garden which he neglected while building the larger one for interior zinc. The experimental one had been made in four sections, so he could try different pumping systems and nutrient solutions. Now he set the pumps to work. The plants looked ragged, but they'd perked up with proper lighting and circulation of the hydroponic liquid. Then he went into the plant's small office building and sat down with drawing instruments to modify the design of the magnetic core. At eleven he'd worked out a rough theory and refined the design, with curves and angles all complete. At four the next morning a second, modified magnet core was formed and polished. He'd heard the first newscast on Friday night. It was now early Sunday morning. And although he was tired, he was still not sleepy. He worked on doggedly, winding fine magnet wire on a noticeably complicated metal form just before sunrise, he tested it. When the current went on the wire winding seemed to swell. He'd held it in a small clamp while he tested it. The clamp overturned and broke the contact with the battery before the winding wire stretched to breaking point. But it had not torn itself, or anything else, to bits. He was suddenly enormously weary and bleary-eyed. To anyone else in the world, The consequence of this second attempt to make what he thought of as a negative induction magnet would seem an absolute failure. But Burke now knew why the first had failed and what was wrong with the second. The third would work, just as the unfired hand-weapon of his dream would have worked. Now he could justify to himself the association of a recurrent dream with a message from outer space. The dream now had two points of contact with reality. One was the sounds from emptiness, which matched those in the dream. The other was the hand-weapon of the dream, whose essential working part now plainly did something unknown in a normal world. But it would be impossible to pass on his information to anybody else. Too many crackpots have claimed too many triumphs. His actual, unpredictable technical achievement would have little chance of winning official acceptance especially since he would be considered a non-accredited source. Burke had a small business of his own. He had an engineering degree. But he had no background of learned futility to gain a hearing for what he now knew. "'Crackpots of the world unite!' he muttered to himself. He dragged himself out of doors to a cool, invigorating morning, and drove somnolently to the diner he patronized before. The coffee he ordered was atrocious, but it waked him. He heard two truck-drivers at the counter. ''It's baloney,'' said one of them scornfully. ''There ain't no people out there. We'd a heard from them before, if there was. Them scientists are crazy!'' ''Nuts!'' said the other earnestly. ''One of their idle thoughts would crack your brain wide open, Mac. They know what's up, and they're scared. If you want to know, I'm scared, too." Of what? Hell, did you ever drive at night and have all the stars come in pairs like snake eyes, like little mean eyes looking down at you and despising you? You've seen that, ain't you? Whoever's signalin' could be looking down at us just like the stars do. The first man grunted. I don't like it, said the second man fretfully. If it was a man heading out to go huntin' among the stars for something he wanted, that's all right that's like a man goin' huntin' in the woods with a gun. But I don't like somebody comin' our way from somewhere else. Maybe he's huntin' us." The two drivers paid for their coffee and went out, and Burke reflected wryly that the second man had, after all, expressed a universal truth. We humans do not like to be hunted. The passion with which a man-killing wild beast is pursued comes from human vanity we do not like the idea that any other creature can be better than we are. It is highly probable that if we ever have to face a superior race, we will die of it." So Burke went back to the plant and began to make yet another of the peculiarly wound magnets which were not magnets. This was to have three of the odd-shaped cores, formed in line, of a single piece of Swedish iron. As the windings were put on, they'd be embedded in plastic over that would go a casing to keep them from expanding or stretching. It ought to be distinctively different from a magnet. It was an extremely long and utterly tedious job. He knew what he was doing, but he had doubts about the why. As he worked, though, he wrestled out a detailed theory. Discoverers often work like that. It was said that Columbus didn't know where he was going when he started out, didn't know where he was when he got there, and didn't know where he'd been when he got back. The history of the discovery of the triode tube was points of similarity. Burke had begun with a device which destroyed itself when turned on, developed the idea into a device which swelled to uselessness when energized, and now hoped that it would turn out at the third try to be something the textbooks said was impossible. Outside the construction shed the world went about its business. While Burke worked on through the Sunday noon hour, a Japanese radar telescope aimed at the sky and made six successive position findings on the source of the space signals. When Sunset found him laboring doggedly at a metal lathe, Croydon made eight. American radar telescopes had made others. Carefully computed, the observations added up to the discovery of an independent motion of the signal source. It moved against the stars as if it were a solar system body with an orbit in the asteroid belt, some 360 million miles from the sun, as compared to Earth's 92 million. At midnight on Sunday, while Burke painstakingly made micrometric examination of the triple magnet core, Harvard Observatory reported that there should be a very minor asteroid at the spot in space from which the signals came. The coincidental asteroid was known as Schull's object. It was listed as M387 in the catalogues. It had been discovered in 1913, was a very minor celestial body, had an estimated greatest diameter of less than two miles, and its brightness had been noticed to vary, suggesting that it was of irregular shape. It was too insignificant to have been kept under constant observation but the signals from space appeared definitely to originate from its position. An hour after midnight, Eastern Standard Time, Palomar detected the infinitesimal speck of light which was Scholl's object at exactly the place the radar telescopes insisted was the signal source. Satellite watching stations now monitored the cryptic signals around the clock, and radar telescopes began to sweep space for possible answers to the space broadcast. There was an uncomfortable possibility that the transmitter might not be signaling Earth after all, but a fellow mystery of space, an associate or sister ship. More data turned up. M.I.T. made examination of the signals themselves. Timed, the intervals between notes varied, as if keyed by something alive. But successive broadcasts were identical to microseconds. The conclusion was, that the original broadcast had been set up by hand, as it were, but that all were now transmitted mechanically, automatically, by a robot transmitter. It was Monday morning when Burke completed the last turn of the last winding of his three-element pseudo-magnet. There are many things which become something else when they change in degree. Electromagnetic radiation may be long radio waves, or radiant heat, or yellow light, or ultraviolet, or X-rays, or who knows what, according to its frequency. It is different things with different properties at different wavelengths." Burke believed that his cores and windings were something other than magnets, because the flux they produced was of a different intensity. He did not believe it to be magnetism. At nine o'clock Monday morning he was clumsy from pure weariness, When he began to fit the outer case on the thing he'd worked so long to complete, the hand weapon in his dream undoubtedly flung bullets through a rifled bore, penetrating the very center of the multiple core. The design of the hand weapon ruled out any possibility of a considerable recoil. It wasn't built to allow the hand to take a recoil, so there must be no recoil. On that basis, Burke had made what finally amounted to a thick rod some six inches long and two in diameter. With the casing in place it was absolutely solid. There was no play for the windings to expand into. He blinked at it. Common sense said he ought to put it aside and test it when his mind was not nearly numb from fatigue. Then Sandy came into the construction shed looking for him. She'd arrived for work and seen his car outside the shed her expression indicated several things, a certain uneasiness and some embarrassment, and more than a little indignation. When she saw him unshaven and wobbly with weariness, she protested. "'Joe, you've been working since heaven knows when!' "'Since I left you,' he admitted. "'I got interested.' "'You look dreadful.' "'Maybe I'll look worse after I try out this thing I've made. I'm not sure.' When did you eat last? she demanded. And when did you sleep? He shrugged tiredly, regarding the thing in his hands. He'd had enough experience contriving new things to know that no theory is right until something that depends on it has been made and works. He tended to be pessimistic, but this time he thought he had it. Is this working night and day a part of your reaction to those signals? asked Sandy unhappily. If it is, Let's try it," Burke interrupted. It's something I worked out from the dream. Now, I'll find out whether I'm crazy or not, maybe. He drew a deep breath. He had a sodden, deep and corrosive doubt of things which didn't make sense, like space signals and magnets which weren't magnets, because they were capable of negative self-induction. If this shows no sign of working, Sandy.... What? He didn't answer. He went heavily over to the table, where he had storage battery current available. He plucked a momentary contact switch out of a drawer and connected it to the wires from the small thing he'd made. Then he hooked on the storage battery. "'Stand back, Sandy,' he said tiredly. "'We'll see what happens.' He flipped the momentary contact switch. There was a crash and a roar. The six-inch thing leaped. It grazed Burke's head and drew blood. It flashed across the room a full thirty feet, and then smashed a water-cooler and embedded itself in the brick wall beyond. A tool cabinet tottered and crashed to the floor. The storage battery spouted steam, swelled. Burke grabbed Sandy and plunged outside with her as the building filled with vaporized battery acid. Outside, he put her down and rubbed his nose with his finger. "'That was a surprise,' he said with some animation. Are you all right?" "'You... could have been killed!' she said in a whisper. "'I wasn't,' said Burke. "'If you're not hurt, there's no harm done. It looks like the thing worked. Lucky that was only a millisecond contact. Negative self-induction. I'll break some windows and come to the office.' He did break windows, from the outside, so air could flow through the building and clear away the battery-acid steam. Sandy watched him anxiously. Okay, he said. I'll come quietly. He followed her to the office. He was so physically worn out he tripped on the office step as he went in. Tell me the news on the signals, he said, still coming in? Yes. She looked at him again, worried. Joe, sit down, here. What's happened? Nothing, except that I'm a genius at second hand. I didn't intend it that way, and maybe it can be covered up, but I've turned out to be sane. So I think, maybe you'd better get another job. Since I'm sane, I'll surely go bankrupt and maybe I'll end up in jail. But it's going to be interesting." His head drooped and he jerked it upright. "'This is reaction,' he said distinctly. "'I'm tired. I wanted badly to find out whether I was crazy or not. I found out I haven't been. I'm not so sure I won't be presently." He made a stiff gesture and said, "'Take the day off, Sandy. I'm going to rest a while.' Then his head fell forward and he was asleep. Burke slept for a long time, and this time dreamlessly. The thing he made had worked for much less than the tenth of a second, but it came out of his dream, ultimately, and it was linked with whatever sent messages from asteroid M387. There was still nothing intelligible about the whole affair. It contained no single rational element. But if there was no rational explanation, there was what now seemed reasonable action that could be taken. So he slept, and, as usual, the world went on its way unheeding. The fluting sounds from the sky remained the top news story of the day. There was no doubt of their artificiality, nor that they came from a small, tumbling jagged rock which was one of the least of the more than fifteen hundred asteroids of the solar system. It was two hundred and seventy million miles from Earth. The latest computation said that not less than twenty thousand kilowatts of power had been put into the transmitter to produce so strong and loud a signal on Earth. No power source of that order had been carried out to make the signals, but they were there. Astronomers became suddenly important sources of news. They contradicted each other violently. Eminent scientists observed truthfully that Shoals' object as such could not sustain life. It could not have an atmosphere, and its gravitational field would not hold even a moderately active microbe on its surface. Therefore, any life and any technology now on it must have come from somewhere else." The most eminent scientist said reluctantly that they could not deny the possibility that a spaceship from some other solar system had been wrecked on M387, and was now sending hopeless pleas for help to the local planetary bodies. Others observed briskly that anything which smashed into an asteroid would vaporize if it hit hard enough. Or bounce away if it did not. So there was no evidence for a spaceship. There was only evidence for a transmitter. There was no explanation for that. It could be mentioned, said these skeptics, that there were other sources of radiation in space. There was the Jansky radiation from the Milky Way, and radiations from clouds of ionized material in emptiness, and radio stars were well known. A radio-asteroid was something new, but... It was working astronomers, so to speak, who took action. They had been bouncing signals off of Earth's moon and various artificial satellites, and they'd flicked signals in the direction of Mars and Venus and believed that they got them back. The most probable returned radar signal from Mars had been received by a radar telescope in West Virginia. It had been turned temporarily into a transmitter and some four hundred kilowatts were poured into it to go out in a tight beam. The working astronomers took over that parabolic bowl again. They borrowed, begged, wheedled and were suspected of stealing necessary equipment to put nearly eight hundred kilowatts into a microwave signal, this time beamed at asteroid M387. If intelligent beings received the signal, they might reply. If they did, the working astronomers would figure out what to do next. Burke slept in the office of Burke Development, Inc. His features were relaxed and peaceful. Sandy was completely helpless before his tranquil exhaustion. But presently she used the telephone and spoke in a whisper to her younger sister Pam. In time Pam came in a cab bringing blankets and a pillow. She and Sandy got Burke to a pallet on the floor with a pillow under his head and a thickness of blanket over him. He slept on, unshaven and oblivious. Ham said candidly, "'If you can feel romantic about anything like that, Sandy, I'll still love you, but I'll join the men in thinking that women are mysterious.' She departed in the cab and Sandy took up a vigil over Burke's slumbering form. Pravda announced in its evening edition of Monday that Soviet scientists would send out a giant space probe, intended to orbit around Venus, to investigate the space signal source. The probe would carry a man. It would blast off within six weeks, preceded by drone fuel carriers which would be overtaken by the probe and furnish fuel to it. Pravda threw in a claimed that Russians had been first to refuel an airplane in flight, and asserted that Soviet physical science would make a space voyage of 270 million miles mere duck soup for their astronaut. Editorially, American newspapers mentioned that the Russians had tried similar things before, and that at least three coffins now floated in orbit around Earth, not to mention the one on the moon. But if they tried it, the American newspapers waited for a reaction from Washington. It came. The most eminent of civilian scientists announced proudly that the United States would proceed to the design and testing of multi-stage rockets capable of landing a party on Mars when Earth and Mars were in proper relative position. This having been accomplished, a rocket would then take off from Mars for asteroid M387 to investigate the radio transmissions from that peculiar mass of tumbling rock. It was blandly estimated that the Americans might take off for Mars in eighteen months. Sandy watched over Burke. There was nothing to do in the office. She did not read. Near seven the telephone rang, and she frantically muffled its sound. It was Pam, asking what Sandy meant to do about dinner. Sandy explained in an almost inaudible voice. Pam said resignedly, All right, I'll come out and bring something. Lucky it's a warm day. We can sit in your car and eat. If I had to watch Joe sleeping like that, and needing a shave as he does, I'd lose my appetite. She hung up. When she arrived, Burke was still asleep. Sandy went outside. Pam had brought hero sandwiches and coffee. They sat on the steps of the office and ate. "'I know,' said Pam, between sympathy and scorn. "'I know you like the poor goof, Sandy, but there ought to be some limit to your amorous servitude. There are office hours. You're supposed to knock off at five. It's seven-thirty now.' And what will being decent to that unshaven Adonis get you? He'll take you for granted and go off and marry a nitwit of a blonde who'll hate you because you'd have been so much better for him. And she'll get you fired, and what then?" "'Joe won't marry anybody else,' said Sandy forlornly. "'If he could fall for anybody, it'd be me. He told me so. He started to propose to me Friday night.' "'So?' said Pam, with the superior air of a younger sister. Did he say enough for you to sue him?" "'He can't fall in love with anybody,' said Sandy. "'He wants to marry me, but he's emotionally tangled up with a female he's had dreams about since he was eleven. "'I thought I'd heard of everything,' said Pam. "'But that!' Sandy explained morosely. As she told it, it was not quite the same picture Burke had given her. Her account of the trees in Burke's recurrent dream was accurate enough, and the two moons in the sky, and the fluting, arbitrary tones from behind him. Pam had heard their duplicates along with all the broadcast listeners in the United States. But as Sandy told it, the running figure beyond the screen of foliage was not at all the shadowy movement Burke described. Sandy had her own ideas, and they colored her account. There was a stirring inside the small office building. Burke had waked. He turned over and blinked, astonished to find himself with blankets over him and a pillow under his head. It was dark inside the office, too. "'Joe,' called Pam in the darkness, "'Sandy and I have been waiting for you to wake up. You took your time about it. We've got some coffee for you.' Burke got to his feet and stumbled to the light switch. "'Fine,' he said ruefully. "'Somebody got blankets for me, too.' nice business, this." They heard him moving about. He folded the blankets that had been laid on the floor for him. He moved across the room and turned on Sandy's desk radio. It hummed, preliminary to playing. He came to the door. "'I'm sorry,' he apologized. "'I worked pretty hard, pretty long, and when the thing was finished, I passed out. I feel better now. Did you actually say you had some coffee?' Sandy passed up a cardboard container. "'Pam's compliments,' she said. "'We've been waiting until you slept off your working binge. We didn't want to leave you. men sound livelier than they used to.' A voice from the radio broke in. O'Clock News. A signal has been beamed toward the space broadcast transmitter by the parabolic reflector of the Brainville Radar Telescope acting as a mirror to concentrate the message toward asteroid M387. So far there has been no reply. We are keeping a circuit open, and if or when an answer is received, we will issue a special bulletin. The San Francisco Giants announced today that in a three-way trade.... Burke had listened to nothing else while the news broadcast dealt with space signals, but other news did not mean very much to him just now. He sipped at the cardboard cup of coffee. I think," said Pam, that since you've waked up, I'll take my big sister home. You'll be all right now." Yes, said Burke, abstractedly, I'll be all right now. Really, Joe, you shouldn't work day and night without a break, Sandy said. And you shouldn't have bothered to stand watch over me, he answered. Well, I guess the Shed should be clear of battery fumes by now. I'll go over and see. Burke came back in a few minutes. "'This thing I made is pretty tough,' he observed. "'It smashed into a brick wall, but it was the wall that suffered.' He fingered it thoughtfully. "'I had that dream again just now,' he volunteered. "'While I was asleep on the floor. Sandy, you know about such things better than I do. How much money have I in the bank? I'm going to build something, and it'll probably cost a lot.' Sandy's hands had clenched when he mentioned the dream. So far it had done more damage than any dream had a right to do. But it looked as if it were about to do more. She told him his balance in the bank. He nodded. "'Maybe I can stretch it,' he observed. "'I'm going to—' The music had stopped inside the office. The voice of an announcer interrupted. "'Special bulletin! Special bulletin!' Our signals to space have been answered. Special Bulletin. Here is a direct report from the Bradenton Radar Telescope, which, within the hour, broadcast a message to space." A tinny, agitated voice came from the radio, punctuated by those tiny beeping sounds that say that a telephone talk is being recorded. A definite reply to the human signal to asteroid M387 has been received. It is cryptic like the first message from space, but is unmistakably a response to the eight hundred kilowatt message beamed toward the source of those worldwide-received strange sounds. The tinny voice went on. End of chapter 2